When you resist the policeman, you're not simply resisting the policeman, you're resisting God who gave the policeman his authority. When you're disrespectful to the policeman, you're not simply being disrespectful to him, but to God who gave him that authority. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we find ourselves in chapter 13 today dealing with the topic of government. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that government is an institution established by God to carry out justice within a given region. And governments which are to be equitable are also called to be just and to execute justice swiftly in the case of lawbreakers. We're to be respectful of the governmental authorities God has placed over us, but that doesn't mean we are to blindly agree with all legislation. Take the Word of God, would you? Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans 13 that deals with the Christian in government. We've been working our way through Romans, and today we want to begin the 13th chapter where we left off last time. These are challenging days for our country. And these will continue to be challenging days, I'm sure, for some time to come. And one of the best things that we can do as Christians are to be good citizens. So you can see the title of the message is Christian Citizenship. And I want to try to ask and answer several questions. What are our responsibilities? What are our duties? What are our rights as Christian Americans? Now, this chapter speaks to our relationship both to the government and our responsibility to the government. And in these five verses, there are so many issues that are raised up by application. Issues of good versus evil government. Issue of city ordinances, of police officers, of capital punishment, of just and unjust war, the role and the function of the military, just a plethora of issues that come right out of these verses. And so they're very, very important We are to be able to respond for the hope that is within us. We are to be able to give a biblical answer for questions that people ask. And so let's pay close attention to what God says. I'm reading Romans 13, the first five verses from the New American Standard Translation. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Throughout the history of the church, there has been tension between obeying and disobeying the government. But the Bible plainly tells us here in verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And so a question is often asked, well, is it ever right to disobey the government? Let me give you a few examples that have come over the last several centuries. You are a Christian living in Boston during the time of the Revolutionary War. You grew up in England, but in your early 20s, you moved to New England with your wife 
You live in the state of Massachusetts. You've had three children there. They were born in America. You have a successful business. You're established. But your mother country where you were raised and where your parents are still living is putting increased pressure on you to pay taxes and to submit to their king. 18th century America, if you know your American history, had been under the authority of England and many no longer wanted to pay taxes because of many of the injustices that were coming from Great Britain on the American people. And so finally, a revolution is declared against England. Should you as a Christian support, support the revolution? Do you fight for America or do you fight for the homeland? Is there a clear biblical warrant to disobey Romans 13.1? Every person is to be in subjection of the governing authorities. This was a very real issue and an issue of heated discussion amongst evangelical Christians during that time. And by the way, if you know your history, for 11 years, the founders had petitioned the king of Great Britain to see some of his unlawful, unbiblical actions against the colonists. And of course, the monarch ignored their grievances. At one point, they sent 25,000 troops into the colonies. They seized property. They unjustly imprisoned people. They violated British common law. They violated English, the English Bill of Rights, not to mention the Magna Carta that had been in place for centuries. King George III started down a road that the Americans ended up resisting. They felt like that as long as the king was acting unjustly, that they had a moral obligation and a moral right to defend themselves. Now, I'm not here to argue for the pros or cons against the American Revolution. I just want you to know that this was an issue they wrestled with in their minds. Let me give you a second illustration. Let's go back about 150, 160 years. You're a white Anglo-Saxon living in South Carolina, and you're faced with the issue of slavery. As a born-again Christian, your heart is totally against it. Biblically, you are aligned with those who want to abolish slavery because you know it is a wicked evil. But politically, you're in a state that has succeeded from the union on the basis of what some call states' rights. And so you receive military orders from the Confederate States of America to fight against the union. Should you align with the North or with the South? And if you decide to align with the South, on what biblical grounds can you argue that you are to do that? Again, a very hot issue amongst evangelicals during that time frame. Let's change the scene. You are an employee of the government of Germany. It's in the 1930s. Hitler has come to power. And your job in the Third Reich has brought orders to be involved against the Jewish people. You know Hitler has a hatred for the Jews. You know, Hitler has maybe even a plan to not annihilate the Jews, but you have orders to report to, in the Third Reich, and knowing the intrinsic value of human beings, what are you going to do? Some said, well, there were certainly godly men, men like Nehemiah, like Daniel, like Joseph, that served in godless governments, and God used them to protect human life because they served in the midst of an ungodly government. Should you obey the government? Or should you flee the country? Let me make it more current. You are a pastor living in Sweden and your country has passed a law 
saying that it is a hate crime to speak, even preach, against the sin of homosexuality. The law originally written to protect the Jewish people against Nazi sympathizers was amended to include sexual orientation. And you feel like there's a growing movement of people in your country who are embracing what God calls sin, and you know you have a biblical responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God. And so you have an opportunity to post your sermon in the newspaper, and so you advertise it. Should you stand up and preach? Should you go to jail, maybe have a prison ministry there, or should you just be silent on the issue? Or very recently, you own Liberty Ridge Farm in New York State, and on your property you have a gorgeous barn in which you hold marriage receptions, family reunions, company parties, and you have a request to host the same-sex marriage and reception to follow. Should you serve? Should you allow it to happen on your property? Should you agree with Andy Stanley, who advocated that Christian couple who owned a Christian bakery in Kansas, that this had nothing to do with Jesus and that they should just serve and bake the cakes for the homosexual marriage? The judge determined that this couple would be fined $13,000 for breaking New York state law. And if you know the case, the couple believed that this violated the will of God and they closed their wedding business. I thought about it this week and I thought, well, what if it was a Muslim who had a catering business who was asked to serve pork and ham against his conscience? What would the result have been? And so how should a believer respond and how should a government act? Let me give you one more. You're an F-18 pilot sitting in my office right before the first Gulf War. And you come to me and you say, Pastor Carl, I never thought I would actually have to drop bombs for my aircraft. And I'm very concerned because I know the Bible says you shall not kill. And I'm afraid that I'm going to drop bombs, not just on the enemy, but on innocent women and children. And I don't think I can do that. Well, you would have thought he would have thought his way through this in this all-volunteer army. But these are the kinds of issues that our passage surfaces this morning. There is certainly no one passage of Scripture that addresses all of those issues. And if you take just one text of Scripture, you will probably end up in error. So you have to look at the broad counsel of Scripture as it relates to some of these things. So there's an introductory premise here at the start of the chapter. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. The word subjection is actually a military term. It means to fall under the rank of another. It was used in the first century of a superior officer giving orders to a junior officer. Bottom line, this is not a suggestion. This is a command which means that you and I as Christians are to obey the law of the land. We're not to evade our taxes. We're to follow the building codes. We're even, yes, to keep the speed limit. I know our right foot is often the last part of our body to be sanctified, but even the right foot is to be in subjection. Now, we're going to look at many implications in this passage, whether it's private property rights or respecting the police officer, but we need to know that government is here in this verse termed a minister of God. So why should I obey the subjecting the governing authorities? Notice, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. You say, what about wicked governments? What about vile kings? Are they established by God? For there is no authority 
except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, the careful reader, if you picked it up this morning, you saw the repetition of the word authority. I have it underlined in my Bible. It's already appeared twice in verse 1. It appears a, sec- a third time in verse 3, and a for- in verse 2, and a fourth time in verse 3. Now, interestingly, in the original language, there are two words that are used for political power. One is the word kratos, that means the power to rule. And when it's joined with the Greek word demos, it gives us the word demokratos. And so we have our English word democratic that speaks of the rule or of the power of the people. But that's not the word that God used here. He used a different Greek word, exousia, which speaks of delegated authority. It's used very specifically in Greek when someone delegates authority to you to act on their behalf. In other words, what Paul is saying by using this particular word is that the power the government has is delegated by God. And that's clear just by reading the verse. You say, well, what about some man like wicked King Nebuchadnezzar? And indeed, he was a wicked man. Though he was converted, I preached a sermon once on the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar, but put out in the margin, Daniel 2, 37 and 38. Let me read to you what God said by his prophet. Daniel said, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. Then Daniel, when he prayed, he said in Daniel 2, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God is the one who gives kings and presidents their authority. You say, I thought we gave it to him when we voted for him. No, whatever means that that person may come into office, God is still the one who gives them authority. And so if you are worried that the governments of this world are getting away with murder, understand because the authority came from God, they are indeed ultimately accountable to God. Hold your finger here. I want to show you the classic example of this. Turn back to the Gospel of John chapter 19. Go to John chapter 19 for just a second. And the encounter is the Lord Jesus just before his crucifixion, after his scourging, before his crucifixion. He's standing before Pontius Pilate. The Jewish men of his day wanted to get him on a religious charge, and Pilate wanted nothing to do with religion. And so they got him on a political charge. If you remember, they accused him of treason, and they said he makes himself out to be a king. And um, remember what Jesus said when he stood there before Pilate? Drop down to verse 9. Pilate asked, where are you from? But Jesus, like a sheep silent before its shear, as Isaiah prophesied, gave him no answer. He never defended his innocence. Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me. You do, do you not know that I have authority to release you? That I have authority to crucify you? By the way, Jesus' response that I want you to listen to very closely has been a great encouragement to God's people throughout the ages that have fallen under unjust governments. Jesus said to Pilate in verse 11, you would have no authority over me 
unless it has been given you from above. The word authority is the same one Paul is using in our text, exousia, delegated authority. Pilate, the power that you have is delegated authority. It came from God. It came from on high. Now, Pilate thought that his authority was derived from Caesar, but both Pilate and Caesar's authority was delegated from God. It came from heaven. The authority from above. And again, that dovetails with what Paul is saying. There is no authority except that which is from God. All authority is ultimately established by God. And so the Lord is making it very clear here that Pilate's arbitrary, unjust, illegal use of authority would not go unnoticed by God and unrecorded. He was accountable to the ultimate authority. He already had brought about one miscarriage of justice by scourging what he knew to be an innocent man, and he's about to pull off a second one. And so Jesus, in light of this, adds, notice, for this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Question, who delivered the Lord Jesus to Pilate? Caiaphas, not Judas. Judas delivered him to the Jews, but Caiaphas delivered him to Pilate. Remember, there are six trials that Christ had. It was Caiaphas who presided over the Sanhedrin. It was Caiaphas who accused the Lord Jesus of blasphemy. It was Caiaphas who said he was deserving of death. It was Caiaphas who delivered him up to Pilate. Now, the fact that Caiaphas delivered him up and had the greater sin did not mean that Pilate had no sin. Greater sin implies lesser sin, correct? He had a lesser sin, but Caiaphas had the greater sin, which I think is very, very interesting. Caiaphas, of course, was the high priest, not God's high priest, not God's appointed and called high priest, but man, the Romans put him there. And he was a very self-centered high priest. He was man-seeking, man-pleasing, worldly-minded. And really, that's the problem in the church today. And Caiaphas' sin was greater. Why? Because while Pilate had authority, he had authority over the temporal affairs of men. But Caiaphas had authority over the eternal souls of men. And he was not called of God, should not have been in that position. And there are many men in our pulpits today who are not called of God because if they were called of God, there would be a fire from God in their bones to preach the Word of God. But they open up the Bible to make it look Christian, and they're not doing exegesis, pulling out what the text says. They're guilty of narcissus. They're reading into the text, and their sermons are man-centered and not God-centered and not God-glorifying, and people love it, and it grows huge churches. They will give an account someday. It is a greater sin, and that's why God warns those who are to be in the ministry that they will indeed incur someday a stricter judgment. Now go back to Romans 13 for a second. The illustration that I brought out of John that I want you to see is that all authority originates from God and Jesus affirmed the same thing. The authority of the politician, the authority of the policeman's badge, the authority of the judge's robe, the authority of the king's crown, all authority is established from God and with it, it brings accountability to God. Now, many times, human governments are the byproduct of a wicked people. People, very often, because of their fallenness and their appetite 
for wicked things will ultimately favor wicked leaders, people who will affirm their wickedness. But please understand that while all authority comes from God, it does not mean clearly in the Word of God that God endorses the use of all their authorities. There are three realms in which God gives authority. There are three governments in the Bible. The first government that God established was the government of the family in Genesis 2. The second government was the government of the government in Genesis 9. And the third government or authority is that of the church. Fathers are supposed to be the God-ordained shepherds of their home. They are to be the leaders of their home. And God has given them authority, but with it, accountability and responsibility. But a father, if a father abuses his authority, if he harms his children and beats his wife, then he needs to be held accountable for that authority. A pastor has been given God-given authority, and so the leaders of the church uh, that write to the Hebrews said, obey your leaders and submit to them. But if a pastor is unethical, if a pastor abuses his authority then he is to be held accountable. And so here with civil governments, he's going to point out here that they have an authority and it is within a specific realm. They are to praise that which is good and they are to punish that which is evil. Now God may use an evil government to punish other evil and then God will take them out. And there are many illustrations of that in scripture. God can use even the wrath of man to praise him. But understand God does not endorse abusive power. So number one, he gives this introductory premise that all authority, all governments are established by God. That doesn't mean the way they use the authority is always approved by God. And then he goes on and he gives us three motivations why we as Christians should submit to that authority. There's a note-taking outline. First, God supports law and order. That's the first reason he gives us. God supports law and order. Look now in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When you resist the policeman, you're not simply resisting the policeman, you're resisting God who gave the policeman his authority. When you're disrespectful to the policeman, you're not simply being disrespectful to him, but to God who gave him that authority. Listen to what Peter says in a parallel text. He wrote, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors is sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, there it is again, and the praise of those who do right. And then listen to the next verse. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter is saying a good testimony with the government is to silence your critics by honoring the government, by obeying the government, by, by, by submitting to the government. Again, we will look at this. Scripture has to be interpreted with Scripture. If the only verses you had were 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, you might think it is an unequivocal obedience, and it is not. The government is given for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. And of course, Peter here is stating the divine ideal. While we are to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, there are indeed rare occasions when the Bible points out that there is a time for the Christian to disobey government. Let me give you several examples. And by the way, 
because some Christians during the Second World War in Nazi Germany didn't look at the whole counsel of God, they allowed the government to come into the churches and they would read passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And the pastors would shake their heads and say, amen, we need to obey the government. We need to submit to Hitler's authority. And with few exceptions, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, no, what Hitler is doing is a wicked evil, and we need to disobey the authority, most blindly obeyed. They had left their biblical roots. They had long since left their Reformation theology, and they were biblically illiterate. So remember, though, the context of a passage like Romans 13 is not to deal with the issue primarily of a rebellious government. The focus of it is to deal with a rebellious believer, with a rebellious citizen. And so there are clear passages in the Bible that teach there is a time to rebel against government. Jot down a few of these. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17. Remember, all Scripture, when he speaks of the Old Testament, is under the inspiration of God and it is profitable. There, Pharaoh had ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn babies, but they refused. We read, Moses wrote, the midwives feared God. It did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Daniel chapter 3, remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He issues an edict where he asks all the people to fall down and worship his golden image. And Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, most of us know them by their pagan names and not their God-given names, they refuse to obey. And at great cost, if necessary, even their own lives. Jot down Daniel chapter 6. If you know Daniel, he obeyed all the laws in Babylon until King Darius signs a decree to bow down and pray only to King Darius himself. And of course, Daniel refuses, and he records uh, that refusal in that chapter of Scripture. Why did he refuse? Because he knew what God had revealed in the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jot down this text, Acts chapter 4, 18 through 20. If you remember, in Acts 4, 18, the Sanhedrin uh, abolished all preaching in the name of Jesus. And how did those men respond? They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jot down Acts chapter 5. The Jewish religious leaders arrest the apostles again. They confront Peter and all the other men. And they said, you've disobeyed our rule. You continue to preach. They say, we gave strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, in all the cases that I just cited, these were believers who were willing, if necessary, even with their own lives, to do what was right. And their purpose for rebellion was not defiance of government. Their purpose was to be in submission to God. They didn't have a rebellious attitude towards the government or towards the religious authorities. They had a submissive spirit towards God. And if you oppose the law of man and you obey the law of God, you do what is right. But if indeed you obey the law of man and you oppose the law of God, you do what is wrong. Today's study on the Christian and government from Romans chapter 13 
can be heard again using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, available at the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478. Today's program is number ROM62. You can also support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling at 877-787-7478 or by giving online at searchthescriptures.org or through the Search the Scriptures app. Your generous donation plays a vital role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the gospel. Tomorrow we'll look at confronting the government when they deviate from the law of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures. (music) 